Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Cindy Alvarez, a product manager at Microsoft and author of the book, Lean Customer Development. We talked extensively about differentiating between customer wants and customer needs. This got me to thinking about how we conduct customer interviews. How often are we talking in customer interviews? What kinds of questions are we asking? Are we trying to fill in that silence? Product people need to be comfortable with that silence. We shouldn't fill in the gaps. If a customer responds to a question, we don't have to instantly reply with okay or great. That tells them we've heard enough and that they shouldn't expand on their point. Let's make sure we're not limiting them. But at the same time, we should ask for stories and we should definitely ask them what they really, really want. Well, take a listen. Let me know what you think. Tweet at me at eboduck or email me at eboduck at pendo.io. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Welcome Lovers of Product. Today I am here with Cindy Alvarez. Cindy, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. So I'm currently a product manager. I think I've held every UX and product related title. There is researcher, interaction designer, design lead, and now product manager. I started out with a psychology degree and an intention to be a college professor and went horribly awry. And then I had a plan to be in startups for a career and the last startup I worked at got acquired by Microsoft. So. The best laid plans keep going awry, but they, they keep working out well somehow. So talk to me a little bit about the background in psychology. Has that helped you as a product manager? Yeah, I mean, it's not that I'm referring back to case studies, but so much that we do is based around how humans interact and how we respond to information and fears and wanting to look good in front of our peers and wanting to feel accomplished. All of that feeds into how we pick products and build products. So there's so much where... We go in with an opinion or an idea and it's like, wait, let's dial that back. We know what's really behind it. Yeah, I would imagine it would be of huge help. I, mean, I remember I had, I had Nier on the podcast and we were talking about Hooked and all the, the background of um, you know, consumer behavior and how that affects products. Mm-hmm. So Not I, just I, consumer either. I feel like there's a lot of like, oh, well, consumers do this. Enterprises do all the same wacky stuff. They just There's a veneer of formality around it, but it's still, we're, humans are weird and irrational. Well, I mean, enterprises are just made up of lots of consumers, right? Yep, they have the, the exactly. same habits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, too, to think about that because, you know, we, I at least, I'm a little older, so I, I grew up in that age where, you know, enterprise software was old and clunky and horrible user interfaces, mm-hmm. and now consumers had the iPhone and products like that, and, and now so you get, had that push into the enterprise where people were expecting interfaces that were like they were getting at home, so it really kind of shows that those consumers really were just little pieces of an enterprise, right? And it yeah. was inevitable that that happened. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think it used to be that when there was only one tool for something or it was very difficult, we accepted this sense of, you know, you're going to have to, for example, people used to put in all earnestness on their resumes that they knew Microsoft Word because when there was only essentially one word processing program, that was a difficult thing. You had to master it. People would take classes. You would read the manual. And now there's no tolerance for reading the manuals. If you can't jump in and figure out how to use it, it's not actually very useful. 
And so there used to be these sort of giant swaths of enterprise software. It's like somewhere in there is the feature, you know, enroll in three days of training to find it. And there's just very little tolerance for that. Yeah, now it, it should be there. You should understand it inherently. But if you don't, you just Google it, right? <clears throat> yeah, Anyways. yeah. So talk to me a little bit about a product problem you're really excited about right now. Well, I think it's just that. It's that we as consumers, whether we're on our own or in, in an enterprise, are so used to having these very precision apps that will do exactly what we want or, you know, precision solutions. If I want something, you know, I can go on Amazon, I can search and exactly that thing will appear. And so we, we're much more discerning about what we need and, and we're much less willing to take, quote, expert testimonials. So you see a slickly packaged marketing video and there's this greater and greater skepticism towards it. It's like, if your product was really good, wouldn't you just show me what it does? And I think that poses this interesting challenge because in the past, if you had a big enterprise product, you could kind of stuff a whole lot of things in there and odds were that you'd get at least some of it right. And so people would buy the giant package because somewhere in the box of goodies are the two or three features I need. Now you can't do that. People don't want the box of goodies. Like I don't want to rummage through this thing. I want exactly the thing that works. And it means that as product people, we need to know exactly what that thing is that people need and build that because there's very little tolerance for, you know, here's a box of stuff and somewhere in there is what you need. It's like, I want to see out front on the label. I want to start touching it and poking it right away. And if I don't see that, I'm going to Google it and someone else will have that for me. So it's just, it's, there's very little room for error. Yeah, I mean, the whole buying cycle of software has changed with the cloud too, right? Because of that, I mean, you now have to have you have to keep giving value to a customer because those contracts, even if they're longer than a month, even if they're a year, even two mm-hmm. years, you know, they end. <clears throat> and so this concept that, that I grew up with in the software space of shelfware is really kind of vanishing because if there is shelfware, it's only there until you realize you have a contract you forgot to cancel kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think because there are more alternatives, that contract doesn't actually mean that people are still using and, and getting value from your product. And I think a lot of the kind of old school companies had this realization that, oh, we go back when we send the field sales back out to renew that contract, our customers stopped using it six months ago. They switched and we didn't even know. And that was kind of this big wake up call across the industry. And so now you're seeing a lot of investments been put into, you know, measuring usage and being more in touch with customers. But it's that decision point it's not, you know, make it and forget it. It's continually being reevaluated. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons the company I work at, you know, outside of doing this fun podcast, Pendo, that company exists, right? Just to help people understand, like, is your software being used? How is it being adopted? Mm-hmm. How can you improve the engagement? Yeah. All of those things that become now critical because of the way software is bought and consumed today. So let's go to your background a little bit. You talked about startups and now you're at Microsoft. Talk to me about that transition, why you made it. I mean, I guess why you made it's obvious. You never got acquired by Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. But talk to me about how that transition has been. And, and you've been at Microsoft now I for a while. So, so you, yes. you're liking it. So yeah, tell me about all that. I used to joke that I worked for Microsoft through no fault of my own. And then I deliberately switched. And then I was working on purpose. And I sent out an email to people after I'd made that transition. I moved from Yammer, the acquired company, to actually the Visual Studio Org. And the email subject line was, I'm not dead yet. And essentially, it was something that I had to actually explain, like, why, why are you working for Microsoft? Because most of the people that I'd worked with in my earlier career, that was kind of a baffling twist to them. Because from the outside, you know, it's changing, but Microsoft still has a lot of the same 
perception from the outside as it did in the 90s, kind of, you know, the evil empire and, you know, this massive bureaucracy. And we've all seen the comic with uh, the organizations with the guns all pointing at each other. And there's some truth to that, but it's actually changed pretty rapidly. And I usually tell people that, you know, Microsoft's not one big company. It's more like, you know, a hundred loosely federated little countries. And depending on which country you're in, you might have a very different experience. And I've you know, been kind of touring the countries that are the closest to being in the startup world. And I think there's a lot of people rightfully mock the notion of, oh, it's a startup within an enterprise, because you can't really emulate the startup existential struggle. But there's a different one, which is almost harder, which is, you know, in your startup, you have to succeed, you have to put out something that gives people value, or else you're not going to raise your next round of funding. Within an enterprise, you've got to put out something that people believe in enough to abandon their old habits and their jadedness and, and their learned helplessness or they're just, I'm used to this and I'm gonna, now I'm gonna go do this new thing. And you basically have one chance to bring people along or else you're not gonna raise that next round of buy-in. And I think it's actually a little bit harder because if you're trying to raise money and, and one VC turns you down, there's a whole lot more to go to. If you've burned out an organization within a company, you can't go back in six months and say, hey, we've pivoted. We have something slightly different. They're like, yeah, I I remember you. We didn't trust (laughs) you last time and we still don't. So it's a different existential crisis and it's a kind of a much more human one where you're convincing people and you have no formal authority. I am not Satya. I cannot make anyone within Microsoft do anything. I have to convince them that it's a good idea, that it's better than the thing that they might've been doing for the last decade. So it's it's incredibly challenging and really fun. Yeah, and a new set of challenges, right? And people have been remarkably receptive. I think that's the other thing. And that has changed dramatically. From the time when Yammer was acquired, just about six years ago, there was a very strong sense of, you know, look, acquired startup. We've been doing this for 30 years. We know what we're doing. Don't tell us anything. And, you know, post Satya and post the world changing, it's a very different internal story now. It's saying, look, we were really good at one way of doing things. That still works for part of the company. And for another part, we need to learn all these new skills and we're open to it. And so that's really cool to me. I go up to Redmond and there are people saying, how do we learn to do more of this? Yeah, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Microsoft, even when people were putting them down <laughs> during you know, some of the Balmer era. But uh, I feel like Microsoft's become cool again. It's like the cool place to be. The cool place. Well, you know, I feel like in today's you know political and social climate, we're we're kind of, we're the good guys. And there's not that many good guys. I'm not saying we do everything perfectly, but there are a lot of things that I see coming out that I'm like, I'm, I'm proud of that. Wow, that sounds cheesy, but I am proud to be associated with this company. So now something else you're associated with, you wrote a book, Lean Customer Development, and really lean customer development is a variant of customer development, that concept that mm-hmm. at least the lean part of you created, mm-hmm. right? I can't take credit for that. Actually, that's uh, O'Reilly Media's Lean series. So I think everything just needed to have the title, the word lean in it. But um, if you read the original Steve Blank, Four Steps to the Epiphany, fantastic book, needed an editor. There's a second version, which is better. It was a little tough. Yeah, but but his customer development flowchart was, it was, you know, a whole lot of boxes, like a PowerPoint slides worth of boxes. And it's not inaccurate for defining a new market. It's also completely overwhelming to most people. So it's like, let's take and slim that down. Let's take and make this look like a process that people have faith that they can do. And that was really kind of the exciting part of writing that book is saying like, I know we can do this. I know this is possible. 
it's not a skill that a lot of folks have, whether you're startup or enterprise, that sense of, I'm not going to reality distortion field you like in a startup, and I'm not going to paternalistically tell you this is what you want, as enterprises did for a long time. It's this directed sense of what are you trying to do? Not tell me what you want, because that doesn't work, but what are you trying to do? Well, tell me more about that. And you're sort of fumbling around in the dark, and yet somehow you get to the end and, and you've discovered, oh, now I understand what this person's trying to do. And based on the insights I have as a, as a product person, I think I know what I could build for them. So let's get back to that customer wants and needs in a second. I don't want to lose that thread, <laughs> but what inspired you to write it as a book? And if, you know, I guess now I've just learned something today, you didn't pick the title Lean. No. If it wasn't Lean, what would you have picked? It would have been blank customer development. You know, honestly, I don't know if I would have used the phrase customer development because a lot of people have no idea what that means. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was kind of aiming for customer insights, which is really kind of what it is. So how did I get to write it? I was in a startup at the time and I was talking about this. I was talking about talking to your customers and uncovering needs and I kept going to other startups and giving it as a talk and going to meetups and giving the talk and I was getting a little tired of giving the same talk and I was like, maybe I should write a book. And so I did. Awesome. Because that's the way to do it. Now you can just be like, read my book first. Yeah, like in chapter two. You know, I actually don't remember what's in it. That's the weird thing is, is now it's like four years later and I still talk about many of the things in the book and also other things I've branched into. And someone will ask me, you know, is that in the book? I'm like, I, maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's amazing how, how that changes, right? Or how your perception of what was there adapts and evolves. I just look at some of the things I've written in the past or spoke on and I'm like, I think I talked about that, but I'm not sure. Right. And everything is just what you know, right? That's the classic curse of knowledge, right? And, you know, the, the bias that says we have a hard time understanding that other people don't see what we see. Yeah. In my mind, yeah. there are all the things that I talk about all the time. And I can't believe that you don't know where I've talked about them, which is ridiculous. It is. It is. But I can completely understand that. So let's get back to the wants and needs. How do you differentiate wants and needs? How do you tell product managers to think about that? Sure. So, you know, there are plenty of competing quotes about customers don't know what they want, et cetera. And just as humans, we're terrible at predicting the future. And this isn't a, you know, I'm smarter, the customer doesn't know. It's just, this is a fundamental human thing. We, we think that we want things that we don't necessarily want. And so... People who have kids, this is very obvious. You know, your kid is like, I don't want that shirt. And it's not that they care about the shirt, it's that they really needed a nap or they shouldn't have had that second cupcake. But they're not intellectualizing that and you from that position of remove can see like, I know what is upset with you. So we think we want things and we're not very good at it. So we ask for something based on our sense of what we're gonna want in the future, which is flawed. And also based on our sense of what is possible. Because I think because we don't like to look stupid, we don't want to ask for something that sounds crazy. So if someone says, what do you want with this product? We say, well, what is there today? How would I make that like five to 10% better? And this isn't conscious. This is just what our brains are doing. They're saying like, yeah, you could ask for this much more. But the consumer is not the industry expert. They, have, they are not a product manager. They have no idea what's possible most of the time. And so they ask for these constrained solutions and if we just build those, they're not actually going to be happy. What they need is something different. What they need is like, you need to get from point A to point B. You need to sell your house. You need to get your kids ready for school. You need to renovate. Whatever the need is, you're going to have to do it. And 
you don't, it's not your job to know how to solve it. That's a PM's job. Yeah, I think that's important. And it triggered a thought, something I hadn't thought about before, but you, I believe it's a falsely attributed quote you heard, like, you know, Ford said, oh, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would tell me, you know, faster horses. Mm-hmm. And maybe the reason they said that was because they didn't want to say something crazy. Like you said, like, we're, there could have been people that said, I want a vehicle that's all mechanical and never breaks down that I don't have to feed yeah, and it's going to get me there ridiculous. faster. <laughs> but it sounds kind of ridiculous. So of course, a customer is going to be like, yeah, I want yeah, faster horses, right? right? But if you'd asked, you know, the, I like to turn that around too and say, like, okay, if you asked the customer what they wanted, they probably would have said faster horses. If you'd said, look, what's terrible about riding your horse to get from one place to another, then you might have got some actual needs there. It's like, oh, well, you know, when I get from one place to another, I'm all sweaty. There's mud splattered all over me. You know, it hurts to ride a horse for too long. There are problems that an automobile clearly solved. But, you know, if you just say, what do you want? You're going to get a bad answer if you ask generally what would you you know what's wrong with your situation today how could it be better you get something that's very different yeah absolutely absolutely so it's funny you had in one of your blog posts i believe you know a pirate and i think of rr i think mm-hmm. of annual reoccurring revenue yeah. and there's a lot of rrs now evidently pirates fit in very well in the yeah, software yeah. world but in particular part of your r is the ar and there is activation and retention and that's something you've talked about and written about so Talk to me about what advice you give to product managers regarding activation and retention. So I like to put things back in the, in the human terms. Activation is I have faith that this is going to do what I need. So to get people to activate, you need to give them that faith. You know, it's if you were you wanted someone to go into a building and you've got a door and you can't see through it. You know, it's an opaque door and you want people to come in. Are they going to come in? They're going to hesitate. Like, I don't know. It doesn't look that friendly. Whereas, you know, you have a nice clean open door with a window, maybe it's even propped open, there's a sign that says come on in, that gives me faith that I ought to do that. So, you know, activation is how can you make it clear to someone that this will probably do what you want? And retention is, is it doing what I wanted it to do? And it's, it's very simple, it sounds kind of foolishly simple, but it's, that's a question we keep asking. And I think it's very easy for humans to mistake effort for impact. Like, I worked really hard on something, so it must be good. And that's not true. I mean, it's maybe not fair and it's frustrating, but you can work incredibly hard on a product and have it not actually make someone's life better. And so that's always the criteria we need to look for is like, how do we make someone's life better? When you are making someone's life better, you will retain them. It's very simple. Unless someone else can make their life better in a dramatically better way, but not even a little bit. 10% doesn't make people change products, 20% doesn't. And there's a theory that it, something has to be nine times better to get people to switch. So you really just need to hook that initial, what did you want to do? Okay, we're, we're more or less doing that for you. But a lot of times it's just, you know, step outside of yourself. What does someone want to do? Is it doing that thing? You know, we can write tons of specs or we can have, you know, long, glorious sounding blog posts, but it all kind of comes down to that so what question. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's interesting. I'm I'm not a big believer in the nine times better, but I do believe it. It can't be incremental. Yeah, it has to be a multiple. Whether it's twice as good or close to twice as good, mm-hmm. you know, if you can, if I if I do something that's painful and it takes me two hours every day, you can cut it to an hour. That's awesome. Yep. If you're saying I'm going to save you five minutes, I'm like, and I have to learn a new system and do a new thing, and I was like, ah, you know, and then I don't know if I believe you. That right. It's going to really right. save the five minutes because it's, it's the faith, right? Like. 
are you really going to save me five minutes? It's like when you see those signs outside you know, stores, it's like liquidation, everything up to 70% off. And you're like, right, there's <laughs> yeah, one absolutely. thing in this store that's 70% off and everything else is 10% off. And like, I don't believe you. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a story. I remember, I love this old e-commerce retailer, one of the, the early ones. And they used to have like two or three sales a year. Mm-hmm. And you knew you were going to get great deals because I'm one of those guys that like, I like nice clothes, mm-hmm. but I never, ever want to pay full price for them, ever. Like, I just can't do it. So it's like those sales would come around and I'll be like, check it out. I'll buy some stuff every single time I bought something. And then they got to the point, I think after they went public, there was like a sale every week mm-hmm. and every two weeks. And so I got to the point where I was like, I just don't believe you that it's a good deal. So now instead of like, you know, shopping with them twice or three times a year, I didn't shop with them at all because it went from the, I just don't know if it's true. Yeah. It's, you know, there's only, you know, we save up that, that level of belief. I mean, Amazon should never have more than one prime day. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Maybe you can get a Prime Day and a Christmas, you know, yeah, Black yeah, Friday. They have, you they get a couple they do things. With but Christmas, but yeah. If you start coming up with new holidays no, that come up every month, then yeah, exactly. We're going to be like, eh, there's no impetus to do something. Yeah. Because you're like, there's going to be another one next month and it's not going to be any better. And then it just feels like every day. So that's one of, it's, it brings us to this topic of bias pretty nicely. So talk to me about cognitive biases and, and other biases that product managers often find themselves having. Yeah, and you know, cognitive bias is a really interesting topic. And I found one of the things I, I like to bring up is that it's oftentimes the entry point for folks who might be skeptical about the squishy human stuff. Cognitive bias is a really good way to explain that because there are so many great examples that apply to all of us. And so, you know, our brains are set up to pattern match and to fit in with our society and to make snap judgments. And that's great if you're running from woolly mammoths or you're trying to get shelter with your tribe or you're not eating the poison berries. And that's why we're all alive because our ancestors did this. But they're terrible at nuance. And so there's a lot of ways where our brain tries to protect us from feeling uncomfortable. So this this notion of cognitive dissonance. It's like when you have two ideas in your head that are conflicting, it's really uncomfortable and we tend to look for a third way out. And the classic example is if you've ever redesigned a website or launched a product and you're really proud of it, you think it's really great, and customers are complaining, and inevitably someone will say, maybe these are the wrong customers, or maybe the customers aren't that smart. Because that's a third way out. Because otherwise you're saying, I'm a good product person, I designed this product, but people don't like it. So how can I be a good product person if customers don't like it and our brains don't want to even go there. So we're like, maybe the customer's dumb. <sighs> we feel better. Except that's not accurate. And so, you know, with that one in particular, I always tell people there's something very powerful in saying, let's just assume this thing is true. Now, let's just assume that the product is flawed in some way. What would we do? And setting it up as a hypothetical allows you to kind of relax and say, well, if the product was really having problems, I guess we'd watch people and see what they were trying to do. And then you do that and then you realize that perhaps the new website redesign looks fantastic, but you inadvertently hid something that everyone was coming to do. And so you can bring those things together. And there are many that are along those lines, like trying to prevent us from an uncomfortable feeling. You know, we tend to justify purchases that we've made because we already made them, it's too late. And so we tell ourselves it was a good idea. We rationalize decisions we made in the past We think that we knew it all along. You know, the number of people who said that they predicted the 2016 election outcomes, 
None of them did, but they all are like, well, if you read that thing I said, you know, surely I was hinting it. No, you weren't. <laughs> but that's, that's what we do, and it, it makes us feel better. Yeah, it's that social desirability. Social there, desirability right? is huge. We want to seem like good people. And so there's so many things that we ask. Like all of our natural instincts of questions to ask customers are leading questions. They're yes-no questions. We say things like, wouldn't you like it if... And when you ask me something that starts with that, I'm probably going to say yes without really thinking. It's a lot easier to say yes. It's a lot easier. And look at you. You seem like a nice person. You seem very enthusiastic. Your body language, you're leaning forward. You're like, wouldn't you like this? I'm like, yeah. And I'm not thinking at that moment of trade-offs. You haven't actually asked me for a commitment. It's really easy for me to say yes. But the truth is it might not make any sense. And I I do an exercise sometimes where I, I say, you know, turn to your neighbor and see if they want this pen that you just invented that never runs out of ink. And people will turn and they will obediently say, you know, would you like this pen? How would you like to have a pen that never runs out of ink? And the question that very few people think about is, how often do you write with a pen? And if, you know, if the answer is, if it's me, not very often. I do most things on laptops. Or you could say, when's the last time you bought a pen? And again, for me, I subsist on free conference pens and stolen hotel room pens. I literally cannot remember the last time I bought a pen. If you have made a pen as a product, I am not your customer. And yet if you ask, if you hold it out to me and ask, don't you want it? I'll say yes. I can't remember the last time I had a pen run out of ink. Yeah. I mean, I I can because the free conference pens, but I have an infinite (laughs) infinite supply of them. If a pen runs out of ink, I literally throw it in the trash and grab the next one out of a box. It's like, it's continuous to me. I guess I lose those free conference pens faster than they run out of ink. Yeah, that can also be the case. (laughs) So, So the way we ask the question, we so often ask the wrong question. And the thing is that no one corrects us. Like very rarely does the customer say, you know what, that's not what you should be asking me because we don't. You know, for one thing, it seems kind of presumptuous. And for another, our brains just kind of go with the flow. We're like, yeah, sure, I'd like that. But that's a problem for product managers. Absolutely. Because we ask the question that is kind of hinting at the answer we want to hear. And so when we ask a question that's biased, we get an answer that's inaccurate. And then we set up a whole business model, a whole product around this assumption that we are meeting customer needs. And we're not. Oh, I see that too in retention all the time because... A lot of you want to talk to the happy customers mm-hmm. because those are easier conversations, of course. or at least you think they're going to be. <laughs> and so you end up talking to happy customers all the time, and that becomes what survivorship bias, correct? Exactly, exactly. And so, and and your happy customers and the people who are willing to talk to you are also outliers because talking to vendors is you know sometimes fun, but the people who answer your emails first tend to be the people who are extreme users, and so you listen to them, and you're like, oh. We need to add this filter. We need to add this option. And pretty soon you have a product that's full of toggles that this subset of customers loves. And most people are like, this is really complicated. And I have a washing machine that's got like 16 buttons on it for all these variations. I use two of them. I use like cold water wash and and sanitary. I don't know what the other ones are there for. Probably someone said, would you like a button that does this? And if you'd asked me that, I would have said, sure. And now every single time I do laundry, I'm hovering with my finger over the buttons like, uh, that one. It slows me down every single time. It does the same for me too. It's, it's ridiculous. So other biases that PM should avoid. Oh, we love our ideas so much. 
We love solutions. We really want to solve things because that's who we are as people. We want to build things. And so as soon as there's a problem, we leap from problem to solution so quickly. Maybe we could do this. It's like, wait, 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 let's back up. Let's make sure we understand the problem. And that feels like, oh, that's not fun. That's not the fun part. I'm not designing. I'm not mocking up. I'm not specking out. I'm trying to understand what this person's trying to do. And so there's so many times when we see a problem and we just jump to, maybe we should do this. And then there's a debate internally about, you know, is that the right solution? And meanwhile, we've never actually said like, so what's terrible about riding on a horse? Yeah. And, and I think we can expound upon that a little bit, getting to the real answers. What advice do you give PMs on how to approach that? Yeah. Because if you ask people directly, they, they tend to not tell you. And there's a variety of reasons, you know, in part because in the first question, I don't really trust you yet. Right. You might seem like a nice vendor. We've talked for like 30 seconds. I don't know how much I can reveal. I don't know how much you're interested. And I, one of the things that I say in the book is, is that when you ask a question of a customer, you need to be silent for an uncomfortably long time because the impact that happens when you say, tell me about how you do this. And they give you a three word answer. And then you say, great. You just signaled to them like, that's all I needed to know. It's like when you run into a friend on the street and they ask you how you are and you say, oh, I'm fine. And they say, all right, it was good to see you. Like that's saying, like, I don't want to hear that your cat died or you got a promotion. Like I just, I, we did the formalities and that's it. And so we need to go beyond that. So we're ask a question and then we ask it again. And then we ask a roundabout question. And, and we're really kind of listening for the point where someone brings emotion into the conversation because that's really how they prioritize so you ask someone about their commute and they say, oh yeah, my commute's terrible. There's not a lot of emotion there. I mean, to, that's a little bit of social desirability bias actually coming into place because we're all supposed to complain about our commute, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's like, that's what people do. Um, it actually feels terrible not to. I had um, my first kid slept through the night almost immediately and people would ask, are you tired? And I would say like, oh yeah, I'm exhausted because... <laughs> You know, it seemed like a terrible thing to do to be like, no, she sleeps. I get so much sleep now. Kid two caught me up, by the way. So my, my karma did balance out. But yeah, I told all these people I was exhausted when I was not because that's what social desirability bias does. And But on the other hand, you might get someone who says the inverse, you know, tell me about, tell me about your commute. And you're like, they're like, oh, it's, it's fine. That's, those are, you know, if you read that as a, as, as a transcript, you would get it wrong. But you're like, oh, you know, tell me more about that. I'm like, well, I mean, I guess I can't really avoid it. There's traffic everywhere. Like, this is, this is a problem. We want to dig into it. So the things at face value, we often can't take. And there's a difference between if your commute is 45 minutes, but you're driving along, you're driving on 280 on this beautiful highway and there's trees and there's fog. And you're like, this is nice. Or you're in stop and go traffic. Those are very different. So we want to listen for those points where people bring emotion in and say, well, tell me more about that. And it can actually feel a little bit rude, right? Because they're, they're, they seem upset and we're just poking at them like, oh, tell me more about your pain. But that's actually how we get to a real answer. And so a lot of times people are doing something that they say is okay, but it's not. Or they say it's terrible, but you know, their face is not, they're still smiling. They're, you know, their shoulders are relaxed. They're leaning back in their chair. It's not terrible. Something is terrible. We need to fix the things that are terrible. 
So let's, let's dig a little into product managers and their careers. What should product managers do for their careers? Or maybe phrased another way, what are product managers not doing that they should be doing for their careers? So product management is such an interesting thing because most products that most of us work on are not famous. Most of us are not working on Facebook or LinkedIn or an iPhone. And, and so when you are working on one of those products, you know, there's this sort of presumption of, of competence, of, of greatness, like, oh, you worked on the iPhone? I love my iPhone. For the, you know, 98% of us who don't work on one of those kinds of products, it's hard for people outside your company to know how good you are. And if you're a designer, you have a portfolio. If you're a programmer, you might have, you know, a GitHub repo to show off. If you're a product manager, what do you how do you actually prove to the world that you're you're good and you're smart? And I think the mistake, and I made this early in my career, and I, I see other people make, is not always maintaining a portfolio of people outside your company who know that you're smart and that you're good, that you have these particular skills. And, it, and it's basically actively managing your career. You might be happy where you are today. Hopefully you are for you know an, an ongoing amount of time. But it's always good to have that sense of, if my company shut down tomorrow, who are five people who would vouch that I'm a good hire? And if you don't have those, you should go out and get them. And it doesn't mean you have to go moonlight, you have to go consult, but volunteer, give a talk somewhere, write a blog post. It's always important to have that sense of people who will vouch for you. And I find it's also forcing it in that way makes you get outside the building and pick up new ideas and learn new things, meet new people, which just helps you be a better PM. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think getting outside the building is important for lots of reasons. Yeah. And you can develop some of those people that would vouch for you just by talking to customers. Yeah. There are customers that I had back in the Kissmetrics days that I still keep in touch with. And those eight years ago, I think, but we had good conversations about the product they were using then. And there's still people that I can, you know, point to and, and that, you know, will sometimes ask me for advice and vice versa. So diversity and inclusion, something that you've talked about. I wanted to ask if you could recommend an action for companies or people to take to create more inclusive workspaces. What would you want them to do? Yeah. So diversity and inclusion is, is such a tough thing for people to tackle. And there definitely, there have been a flurry of articles about, you know, diversity fatigue and people just get tired of hearing about it, which, you know, we haven't made enough progress for people to get tired of hearing about it yet. But right. the thing that helps underrepresented folks a lot is actually something that's good for your company and good for everyone else, which is be very concrete about what you want out of an employee both from the hiring stage and the promotion stage. And the more crisp you are, the more likely you are to recognize people from diverse backgrounds' talent. So what happens traditionally when we get into interviews is we like people who remind us of us. And sometimes that's because they went to the same school or because you know they like our, the same restaurant. But a lot of times it's someone who is like us in terms of a gender and ethnic background. We just feel comfortable around them. We think, yeah, I'm going to hire them. They seem great. And then we get into someone who is not like us and we don't have that immediate sense of affinity. And we tend to retroactively say like, well, you know, I don't know if he was as strong on this. Well, I'm not sure if he's done this particular task before. And we extend the benefit of the doubt of people who, who are more like us. 
So the more we can have a crisp set of the most important thing for this role is this. This is the evidence that would convince us that someone was a great designer or good at convincing others or worked well with engineers. Same thing for promotions. If you have that kind of that bullet point list of this is what a senior engineer looks like, then it's so much easier to compare against someone and say bullet point for bullet point, yeah, actually she's doing great. And you know, even as a woman advocating for women, I've had the experience of looking at someone and, and saying like, oh, is she ready for promotion? Oh, I'm not sure. And then looking at that bullet point list and going, well, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. And having that written down was the thing that nudged me out of my sense of, of complacency of thinking like, well, this person's, she doesn't do things the way I would do it. She doesn't have to, she's achieving results. So, you know, objective criteria. Hmm. I like it. I, I think that's a great way to approach, you know, interviews, conversations, raises, opportunities for promotions. I think that's, that's solid. There's a lot of research actually showing that the more objective your criteria are, the more likely they are to benefit everyone, but especially women and people of color. And you look at governments, government agencies, the military, that's where you tend to see a lot of you know, traditionally underrepresented backgrounds rising to positions of power because there is you know, that boilerplate list. It's hmm. interesting. So let's talk about the future of product management. What trends do you see coming up? I think we're going to continue to see this, you know, the, the micro product, the thing that does exactly what you need. We're seeing increasing decentralized decision making is how I put it within the enterprise. So, you know, even, even in my startup background, I've always been an enterprise software. And that used to look very much like single decision maker. There's time set aside for evaluating a product and then there's kind of a top down rollout. And so your sales cycles were slow, but you had to convince only one person. That, for a variety of reasons, is kind of going away. And it started with bring your own device. Companies realized, hey, we don't have to you know, pay for your cell phone bill if we let you bring your own cell phone. And it's, it's spread to the realization that, wait a second, if we roll out one tool to everyone and that tool is kind of crappy, everyone's having a terrible experience. But if we let one team try out a new tool, and they have a terrible experience, we've isolated that damage and we can, you know, we can just tell everyone else not, not to use it. And on the contrary, if one team is using a tool and they're having a great time, well, then we should try and help spread it among the company. So we're seeing this, this, you know, decisions get pushed down to the team level, to the individual level. And when you do that, you've basically got people who don't have time set aside for that criteria. They're, they're just thinking about what do I need to do for my job? Does it do this? Yes or no. So they're not looking at feature checkboxes. They're not looking at marketing videos. So again, we have to be very precise about what people want, but it's also very gratifying because we have a much closer contact with that user. We're not selling to a buyer who may or may not really understand how something's gonna be used. And it also makes those interactions with that user really important, right? Mm -hmm. Because if that first initial entry point to that team doesn't go well, it's gonna be very hard to get in the enterprise. Yeah. So, you know, if you can't win someone over, you know, we, we internally joke about these as, you know, the lunchtime software developer is someone who's trying out a tool during lunch. And if they can't start building with it over lunch, they're not going to adopt it. They're just going to push it to the side. It might actually do exactly what they need. But if it takes two hours to figure that out, that's probably an hour and a half too long, at least. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I think it. Oh, that that's a really good point. Is things need to be intuitive as possible. They need to help users get time to value, get their jobs done. Very important in in an environment like that. Yeah, but they and they they may not necessarily have to be simple, or they may not necessarily be able to be simple. But that entry point needs to be. And the, in the UX field, there's this has been known for a while. This is the concept of progressive disclosure. It's called, which basically means you know only show the user a little bit of information at a time, so you don't overwhelm them. And you know that's where we got sign up wizards essentially. But that's what the whole product has to be like. It's not just once you sign up. It's what is the first task someone needs to do? Let's let them do that, and then we're going to layer in complexity because the reality is that not a, you know not every interaction is going to be that clean. There are going to be edge cases, but I don't need to know about them on day one it's or even day ten. It's interesting too because that that progressive disclosure fits to feedback too. Like we ask mm-hmm. people for an NPS, it's really simple. It's zero mm-hmm. to ten. You give yep. us a score. Now the smart product managers look for those sixes or those fives and be like, well, reach out to them and like. What can we do to move you to an eight or maybe even a nine? Yeah. And now it's like they're already invested a little bit to give you feedback, so they're likely to give you more and have that longer conversation where if we had asked them up front, can I have a 15-minute call to talk about how you're using our product and how it can be better, a lot of them would say no. Yeah. But because they get in, they kind of get committed with that five or six. Yeah, absolutely. So once we've given you some time... We, we, we're going to give you more. And it goes back to that post-purchase rationalization. If I've given you five minutes of my time and you ask for more, if I say no, that's basically admitting that the five minutes was a waste and I don't really want to do that. So at the subconscious level, it's, you know, unless it was a really terrible interaction, I'm going to keep giving you more time because I want to justify the time I've already given you. Absolutely. Awesome. We've talked about a lot today. What are, what are your top takeaways listeners should take? There's a lot of takes there. <laughs> I think it's just really crisp on what do users need to do? Are we doing it? And it's just, I find it so useful to just stop and ask that question. And no matter what it takes, sometimes it takes kind of an unnatural posturing. I find that when a new person joins the team, that's a really natural way to ask it. Because, of course, they have to ask what, what do users want to do and are we doing it? Sometimes you need to kind of fake it and, you know, bring people in from another team and borrow a coworker, borrow a friend who works at a different company and get them to come ask that question because explaining it to a newbie is, is a really good way to make everyone stop and say, wait a second, if that's what customers need to do, and I'm looking at our priorities for next quarter, those don't really line up and we, it's so easy to drift. So just go back to those principles over and over, you know, so what, is it doing what I need? Now, do I have faith that it's going to do what I need? Is it doing what I need? And just repeat that every week. Awesome. One of my favorite things that you wrote, and I'll be amiss if I didn't bring it up, is what features your customers ask for is never interesting as why they want them. That's like one of the favorite things I've heard you say. Gets you to think about that, right? Yeah. It's when the, so now when people ask for features, my, my recommendation, I say, if you already had that, how would it make your life better? And you'll see this interesting division between people who have an answer and people who kind of stop and they're like, well, uh, and that, that means they don't really need it. Yeah. And there's a lot of, doesn't know they don't really need it. And even if they can answer that in a lot of cases, we look at it and say, like I had a conversation with Ryan Singer about calendaring Mm -hmm. right in base camp. And the question came down to, well, what are you using it for? Mm -hmm. Why do you want it? Because often what they're asking for and what they think they need as a feature isn't the best way to solve their Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. So. Well, I have a couple of questions. Love to turn this to you a little bit and see what we can get out of you here. Do you have a favorite product, whether it's software or otherwise, and why would be your favorite? You know, this is I. This is a question that I have been forbidding people to ask in in interviews because I feel like I've never answered this well. Yeah. Um, we could cut it out if yeah, you don't have yeah. one. I mean, you seem to be a big fan of LaCroix. Oh, yeah, I drink a lot of sparkling water. It's actually interesting to talk about because just this, people who are listening, you're probably going to interview product managers, and you're probably going to think this is a good question to ask. And I've actually very infrequently had people answer that question in a way that told me anything about them. So what's my favorite product? You know, we could define it by, like, what do I use all the time? Is Facebook my favorite product? No. I mean, I use it all the time, but I don't have a particular fondness for it. They have, they have achieved a utility, which is there are a lot of people that that is the easiest way to contact. Think about something I really, that's really useful. I use a, a, a to-do list app called Do, D-U-E. And the thing that I like about it is actually also its most annoying feature, which is you set a reminder and at the due date, it will push notify you every minute until you either do it or you reschedule it. And that is incredibly annoying. And it also means that it's really handy for making sure you do the thing. Is it my favorite product? No, but it's very effective. So yeah, it's, no, it's, I, it's, yeah. I could see it being very effective. I could see if it, if it escalated to my wife too, especially oh, if it was something she exactly, wanted, exactly. that would really get me to do that because she would just harass me too. It wouldn't just be the app yeah. that I could reschedule. The precision of it means that I put in ridiculous things like, don't forget your jacket. You know, like, I know I'm going to leave in about 20 minutes, so I'll put don't forget your jacket, and it'll ping me at like 19 minutes, and then 20, and then 21, and, and then I don't. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. It's interesting like, you mentioned it's, it's never a question you've asked at an interview. I've never either. Like when I've interviewed product managers, I've never asked that question. Oh, see, people I used to interview with would always ask it, and I was always infuriated because I felt like this is not telling me anything about No, person. no, I like asking like, if you had this product, if you own this product, what would you do differently? Mm-hmm. What or, would you take away? Yes, takeaway is a great one. That's right. Or how would you take it to market as a good one? I like hearing those kind of stories. Yeah. If if in that organization, you know, product owns some of the go to market for that mm-hmm. offering. Similarly, on the marketing side, it's fun to say what what you saw as a good product launch and why did you think it was good, yeah. and then what would you do a little bit differently. This question I do ask when I interview mm-hmm. people, which is three words to describe yourself, because I think it's interesting to hear what words they pick. Mm-hmm. And then I always usually will dig into one of them and be like, why do you pick that word? What is what, what drove you to that? Right. So. Well, to, for, I'll, I'll, I'll cheat a little bit. I'll have a phrase refreshingly blunt because I am. I am also a complainer and highly optimistic. That's an interesting combination on those last two. Yeah. I fundamentally believe that things will get better. We can do the impossible. I also, it's highly motivating to me to complain about things until I actually fix them. And I think that's the psychology that I find out I often have to explain to new people. It's like, I complain a lot. I I do it because I have faith that we can be better. Yeah. And and that's, it's like the do app for you too, right? It it helps you, it motivate you to make those changes. I mean, the things that that are comfortable, like... Comfort does not really motivate anyone to do anything differently. It just makes you keep on doing. So, like you know, introducing those sharp edges, those little those little pricks. Those are those are the things that are like oh, I, have to, I just have to do something about this. And that's where all the that's where all the good things come from. The good products, the good process changes from someone saying, "This is too easy. We need to make it a little harder." And then we discover something. That's how you get past that local maxima. Well, thank you. This was great. Thank you. 
This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.